This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. In the history of our nation, only 43 men have served as President of the United States. The 39th President was Jimmy Carter. Any opportunity to discuss anything with a former President of the United States represents an historic opportunity. I'm very thankful for that opportunity today and to the conversation that follows. Jimmy Carter served as the 39th President of the United States. In 2002, he won the Nobel Peace Prize, the only U.S. President to have received that prize after leaving office. He's the author of many books, including the most recent, The Lessons from Life Bible, and it's the Bible we're going to talk about. President Carter, welcome to Thinking in Public. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Dr. Mola. Mr. President, you have been known as one who's loved the Bible for the entirety of your public life. And when I think about your biography, and I know the the deep rootage you had, not only in the soil of Georgia, but also uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention and in the local church. Could you just describe for us how you how you came to have such a deep love for the Bible? Well, I was a, a Southern Baptist when I was a child. My father was a Sunday school teacher and was a deacon in the Plains Baptist Church. Uh, so when I went off to the Naval Academy, I was 18 years old. It was natural for me to accept their uh, invitation to teach Sunday school lessons, so I did it for three years while I was at uh, Annapolis. And then when I was on a submarine uh, in, the, in, the, in the Navy, I also taught Bible lessons on occasion, not every Sunday, but on Easter service and that sort of thing. When I was president of the United States, I taught uh, Sunday school lessons in the First Baptist Church in Washington uh, about 14 or 15 times without any prior notification so it wouldn't disturb the, the regular class. And since I've been home uh, from the uh, White House, I've taught regularly in uh, Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains. We have about 100 members on our roll, I think 120. And we have about 30 who come every Sunday. But our church has a special ministry, primarily because of my teaching, and we have hundreds of visitors who come every Sunday. We had about 300 visitors this Sunday. We've had as many as 870 visitors in one Sunday who came to, you know, hear the curiosity about, I guess, of a politician teaching the Bible, and I really enjoy it. We have about 15% Baptists when we count them, and and the rest of them are other Protestants, uh, Catholics, Jews, uh, Muslims, Hindus, uh, Amish, uh, Mennonites, um, and, and, and other denominations and, and believers who come. So I've really enjoyed the Bible, and, of course, I've learned more about it since I've been a full-time Sunday school teacher than I ever did before because I spent several hours a week just studying the meaning of the scriptures. And I always try to start my lesson by bringing the class uh, into the realization that the ancient scriptures, either in the Hebrew text or the New Testament, apply to our lives today. And I give them examples from my own experiences recently or from the headlines in the papers at the time. Well, as a boy growing up in uh, that small church there in Plains, Georgia, you had no idea you would one day serve as president of the United States. But my guess is that during those boyhood years, you had a lot of experience of exposure to the Bible, the kinds of things we would uh, talk about at Sunday school and and worship services and and other occasions. Would it be fair to say that your childhood was was in a part of uh, in an era of time and in a part of the country that was uh, that was pretty much saturated with Scripture? 
Well, it was. I lived in an isolated community. I didn't have any white neighbors. So a lot of my religious faith and a lot of my uh, attendance at church was in the St. Mark uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church. The most famous person in my life was an African Methodist Episcopal Bishop, uh, William Johnson. And he was the most famous and, and, and the most widely traveled person that I knew. So I had a, a mixture of, uh, of, uh, Baptist Christian faith in the Plains Baptist Church, which is all white, and also mixed in by going to church with my black friends. And my father and mother would go on occasion as well. And I, and I didn't really realize at that time how divided we Christians were because of the separate but equal ruling of the Supreme Court and, and it was pretty well accepted in, in my young life. So my father taught, though, every Sunday. As I said earlier, he was a he was a deacon in the Plains Baptist Church. So most of my regular teaching of the of the Bible of the Scriptures came from from uh, our Plains Baptist Church. Now, in your later life, you have of course become undoubtedly the world's most famous Sunday school teacher. And I'm curious. I, I've heard several of your lessons. They've uh, they've been put onto CD form and uh, released in uh, in book format as well. I'm curious. How do you go about studying and preparing to teach your Sunday school lessons there in Plains? Well, every, we travel a lot. My wife and I have been to 130 nations in the world, and we have programs in 70 countries, or 75, as a matter of fact. 30 of them are in 35 of them are in Africa. So as I travel around and do my duties, I'm a professor at Emory University. I I run the Carter Center. We travel a lot. And I, I kind of take mental notes or sometimes write down things that I think are pertinent that would uh, illustrate the lesson for the, for the Sunday morning. And then uh, Friday or Saturday, I, I go through the, the lesson. I generally use a uniform lesson series. It's one that's a standard in, in Baptist and other Protestant churches. And, and I try to extract from my own experiences or from the interest of the day uh, what's on television or radio and or in the New York Times and so forth, and uh, and say, so how does this ancient scripture say from from Exodus or from uh, or, or from Matthew or or whatever apply to what's happening to us that I can use as an illustration? And then I get up early Sunday morning. In fact, I get up early every morning, and and I write out just a one-page summary of what I want to say, so I don't get mixed up on the scriptures. And uh, I. I Sometimes I don't even look at those when I'm teaching the lesson. And then uh, we have it depends on the price of gasoline and tourism and that sort of thing. But but we vary from a, when I teach 150 to as many as 800 people who come and crowd into our little church. So it's a it's a give and take proposition. I know I have to be prepared because when I teach from the Old Testament, uh, quite often I know that I'll have Jewish scholars even rabbis and the, and the audience who want to have discussions with me. And, I, and so I, I kind of go out of my way to, to, to learn what I, what I know. I have a, a good collection of commentaries and that sort of thing, and a, and a good, pretty good collection of theologians' writings, although I'm not, I don't claim to be a theologian. Well, I want to ask you about that in just a moment, because if I were to tell you my own autobiography, and I will impart it to this degree, it was you who introduced me to a couple of theologians when uh, when you were running for president in 1976. But, but before I get to that, I want to go back to the Bible for a okay. moment and uh, and talk about how the Bible functioned in your life during your, your public years of, uh, of particular service yeah. in political office, and especially the time you spent in the White House. Well, that's... I, I... I prayed more and more devoutly 
and fervently when I was president than I did any other time in my life because I, I felt the responsibility of, of uh, really, of a global holocaust. It was during the time of the Cold War, and I knew that the Soviet Union had 30,000 or so nuclear weapons, and so did we, by the way, and, and I knew that uh, any misstep on my part that might lead President Brezhnev to launch an atomic attack on the United States would be devastating to me and 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 to the United States and to Russia and, and to this and to the entire world. So I I really turned more to the principle that that I worship the Prince of Peace, and, and I and I would say that I elevated the, the maintenance of the peace to the top priority in my in my order of uh, of concerns. I would go into the Oval Office some morning and, and turn the globe around to Moscow and try to put myself in the Brezhnev position so that I wouldn't do anything or say anything that might that might cause him to make a mistake and launch an attack on us. Uh, later, of course, I had a crisis when the Shah, after the Shah left and the my hostages were taken in Iran. Uh, at that time, I spent a lot of time studying the uh, studying the Koran. I would have I would have scholars come in and teach me elements of the Koran because Iraq invaded uh, Iran, and and I wanted to know what were the nuances of the difference in, the, in their faith. But then, in, in generic terms, I was a very strong stickler for the maintenance of separation of church and state. I really believe what Tom Jefferson wrote, that we ought to build a wall between the two. And Dr. Mola, I got in a little bit of trouble with my good friend Billy Graham because although President Nixon and, and President Johnson and other presidents had brought Billy Graham in to teach or to, or to preach in the, in the Oval Office or in, in the White House. I decided I didn't want to do that, so I, I refrained from mixing uh, my faith with my official duties as president. Uh, Billy Graham, I have heard, heard he didn't like it, so I explained it to him. It was just because I believed in a strict separation of church and state. So I say the maintenance of peace, the uh, implementation of justice, and the uh, separation of church and state were the things that permeated my thought uh, while I was uh, in the White House. The Civil Rights Movement has been not only so much a part of the history of the South, but also of your biography as well. And, and I've often wondered, and, and you've made reference to this in your previous books, uh, to, to what degree did the Scripture also guide you in understanding what became known as the Civil Rights Movement? Well, I, I never did meet Martin Luther King Jr., but I saw the impact of his life in our in our country. And, and of course, Andy Young, Andrew Young, one of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s chief aides, was became a very intimate friend of mine, and still is. So I really saw the civil rights movement from a distance. Uh, I came home from the Navy in 1953, and and measured by other Southern standards, my wife and I were very liberal on the uh, civil rights issue. Uh, we had boycotts against our business and 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 things like that, which I need not dwell on now. But um, but I, I was able to weather that storm. Uh, when when our church uh, voted uh, finally on acceptance of black worshipers or not, I was a deacon in in the Plains Baptist Church, and I got up and spoke against any discrimination, and I spoke in favor of accepting black worshipers. Uh, I my position only got seven votes, almost all members of my family, and but there were 250 people there, and only 50 people voted against my position. And I that afternoon, Sunday afternoon, I got calls from a lot of people in the church that said they were knew that uh, we should accept 
black people on an equal basis, but uh, they didn't want to take a position in public. So I would say that my early life spent in the segregation of society and my serving in the Navy when Harry Truman ordained that racial discrimination would not apply in any ship on the, in the Navy or any military forces, I would say it was a, a slow and evolving process for me uh, to become uh, convinced that everybody is equal in the eyes of God. I mentioned that you actually introduced me to uh, to some of the first theologians I came to know. Uh, I was 16 years of age when you were elected president of the United States. And uh, you may remember that in the course of that campaign, in, in which, by the way, Newsweek declared it the year of the evangelical because you described yourself as born again. Uh, frankly, the secular yeah. journalists uh, hardly knew what to do with that. And uh, you gave a, 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 a very well-known interview in 1976 in which you mentioned two names that as a 16-year-old I'd never heard before, Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul Tillich. And you yeah, mentioned they, that those— are still my two favorites. Well, I wanted to kind of ask you, how did you come to, to know of them, and, and, and how did those theologians and their, uh, and their influence, how did this impact your thinking? Well, I know you know a little about Georgia history. When I began to run for public office, uh, Bert Lance, who was served with me when I was governor of Georgia, gave me a copy of, of a book by Reinhold Niebuhr called Reinhold Niebuhr on Politics. And, and I pretty well studied that, uh, that book. And, and learned as much as I could about about the proper relationship uh, between between uh, you know religion and politics and how they were not uh, incompatible, but that you shouldn't use religious authority to exalt your own um, your own particular faith. And so and 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 I, then I, I kind of deviated and got onto Paul Tillich later on. And, and I enjoyed him very much. So I would say that those were the two theologians that I got to know earlier. Now I have a pretty good collection of others, but I still go back to those two because I've known them and, and they've kind of been absorbed by me, uh, as part of my, uh, as part of my beliefs. Now I have about eight or ten books either by or about, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, for instance. A very seminal figure, and of course, his idea of moral man and immoral society, as his Gifford lectures became known, uh, really did help uh, many American liberals to recover some sense of sin during the 20th century. And uh, as an evangelical, I would want to believe more than that, but never less than that. And uh, I would say a little bit of Niebuhr uh, would be a big corrective in a secular age. <laughs> well, I think so, too. And he was very practical about it. You know, he, he, he kind of would bring it down to earth, and, and, and so a lot of the a lot of the theologians, I can't quite understand what they write, but but uh, I, I can understand much of what he he wrote. And, and by the way, uh, that my my admiration for Reinhold Niebuhr became known, and and his widow, after Reinhold Niebuhr died, came uh, came to the White House and gave me a collection of tapes of his uh, of his, of his uh, sermons. Jimmy Carter lived through some of the most consequential events of the 20th century. And then again, he was a personal participant in some of those events, especially during the four years he served as President of the United States. 
It was fascinating to hear him go back to his roots of a time when, as a boy, the most well-traveled man that he knew was the bishop of an African Methodist Episcopal church, when indeed from the soil of Georgia. He gained not only his family in those formative experiences, but also his first experiences in church, those experiences defining so much of not only who Jimmy Carter was, but who Jimmy Carter is. And then it was interesting to hear him relate how his love for the scriptures and and how his Christian faith functioned during those very important years he spent in the most powerful office in the world. And yet, there are some pressing questions to which we must turn. I wanted to ask you about the Bible, just uh, as as you have become known uh, again as a Sunday school teacher, known throughout the world, and uh, as you've written so much, what do you believe about the nature and inspiration of the Bible? How would you describe its divine inspiration? I think I think all of the Bible is divinely inspired, and uh, but it, it was interpreted. God's message was interpreted by fallible human beings, who were constrained by their knowledge of uh, of facts about the universe. For instance, when they wrote, uh, you know, God who created everything knew that the size of of stars. And in, and and God knew that uh, the earth was not the center of the universe. And when the Bible says that uh, stars would fall on earth as though they were little twinkling things, uh, obviously that's that's not uh, that's not uh, factual. And and I so I believe that the basic thrust of the Bible, the basic message of the Bible, is is epitomized uh, in the life of Christ and in the teachings of Jesus Christ. And uh, and I and I also believe that, that there's nothing in the Old Testament that uh, contradicts the basic teachings of Christ uh, for peace, justice, humility, love, and so forth, and his relationship, and each person's relationship, proper relationship with other human beings, and also a relationship with God. So I believe in the miracles of the Bible. I believe that Jesus was a virgin, was come from a virgin birth. Uh, I believe in, in that Christ died for our sins on the cross. I believe he was resurrected and, and that we are promised uh, uh, if, if we have faith in, in Christ through the grace of God that we will inherit eternal life. I believe that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. I believe those those things, but uh, I know that there are some things uh, as a scientist, I, I, my background is in nuclear physics, there's some things that weren't un- understood by the writers of the Bible. I just I just ignore that that uh, those discrepancies as insignificant. Well, years ago in another book you wrote, but uh, I now believe that even if some of the more dramatic miracles recounted in the Gospels could be untrue, my faith in Christ would still be equally precious and unshaken. Now, I want to note, you didn't say they were untrue. You said if you discovered that they they were right. untrue, your faith would be unshaken. It, it, just speak to that for me. Well, that's, that's still the case. You know, as I've just described, I believe in, in the miracles as described in the Bible, but even even if I if I didn't believe in the that Jesus walked on water, uh, for instance, or that Jesus did such uh, certain other things, uh, I would still believe in Christ as my Savior. I would still uh, try to pattern up my life in my own fallible human way after Jesus' life as a perfect example of the way all of us should live. Uh, those kinds of things, and so. Christ would still mean just as much to me, personally, as my Savior, as my companion, uh, in, in many aspects of my life, if, if 
if see, he didn't walk on water. That doesn't make any difference to me. The Bible contains many things that, uh, quite honestly, rub up against the sensitivities of a modern age and require all of us to think about how we're going to apply the eternal truth of the Scriptures to some of the most pressing current controversies. The controversies over human sexuality have been an issue, even in just recent days. You've been kind of in the headlines on that issue. Uh, what do you think about the Bible's normative statements about human sexuality? How, how should we interpret those and apply those in, in the modern age? Well, I have to admit, Dr. Muller, that I'm, I'm kind of selective on that point of view. I, I, I really turn almost exclusively to the, to the teachings of Jesus Christ. Uh, who never mentioned homosexuality as all, as a sin. He never condemned homosexuals, and so I don't condemn homosexuals. And our church, our little church in Plains, uh, we don't ask when people come to join our church if they're gay or not. Uh, we don't, we don't ordain, we don't practice uh, marriage between gay couples in our church, but that's a, that's a Baptist uh, privilege of autonomy of, of local churches. I'm against any sort of uh, government law, either state or national, that would force churches to perform marriage between uh, gay people. But I have no objection to civil uh, ceremonies. And so um, I know that Paul uh, condemns homosexuality as, as he did, as he did some other things like um, like selfishness or others that, that everybody is guilty of. And so I, I believe that Jesus reached out to people who were outcasts, who were condemned, brought them in as equals, and I, and I also uh, pretty well rely on on Paul's writings to the Galatians that, that everyone is equal in the eyes of God, that we're treated with uh, compassion. And I, and I personally believe, uh, maybe, maybe contrary to many of your listeners, uh, that uh, that homosexuality is, is is ingrained in a person's uh, character and is not something they adopt and, and can abandon at will. So I know that, that what I've just explained to you might be somewhat controversial, but it's the way I feel. I, I have one problem. I had one problem in in my religion, in my political service with my faith, and that is concerning abortions. I have never believed that Jesus Christ would approve abortion. And so I had to interpret uh, my duties as president compatible with the Supreme Court ruling in Roe versus Wade. But, but with my religious belief, I did everything I possibly could to minimize the need for abortion by liberalizing adoption services and by starting a program that's still in existence, by the way, called Women and Infant Children, a WIC program, where because one of the the key reason for abortions around the world is when a pregnant mother doesn't think she and her baby will be cared for. So I did everything I could to minimize abortions because I don't believe that Jesus would approve of a liberal interpretation of that of that law. Well, I appreciate very much your candor, Mr. President. It's helpful in a conversation like this to, to be able to exchange uh, not only a conversation where we agree, but where we disagree. And uh, I appreciate very much your honesty in that. I, I want to come well, and uh, and ask you something else. Uh, I, I had a conversation Please. like this with Martin Marty, the great American church historian at the University of Chicago. And uh, in the Who course, I admire of, very much. Well, uh, and uh, another wonderfully gracious man. And I, I asked yes. him about uh, how American, the, the larger American culture, especially the intellectual elites, discovered evangelicals, and he said they didn't have to until one ran for president. 
<laughs> and he pointed to 1976 and your candidacy. And, uh, of course, the very phrase born again became so much a part of our national vocabulary, very common among evangelicals for, for generations, but it became a part of our national vocabulary because of all the secular journalists who were scratching their head about what indeed you were talking about. So I want to talk about the gospel for just a moment. When, okay. uh, when you were president, you were well known actually for uh, sharing your faith with other heads of state, a rather unprecedented role for an American president. Uh, how, how would you share your faith? How would you describe and define the gospel? Well, I, I did this on several occasions. One had profoundly important significance. The first time I did it was when I went to Poland. It was my first visit to a foreign country, and the, and the uh, communist general secretary of Poland, the, the ruler of Poland, was an atheist. And he, I had a meeting with him in a private room, and he, afterwards he said, oh, why don't we exclude all of our staff because he wanted to talk to me and, and just the two of us. So we did with an interpreter, and he, his mother had just been, was a devout Catholic and had been to visit the Pope, and he wanted me to explain the basic tenets of my Christian faith, which I did to him. I don't know what happened, but as we know later, the, the, the Pope himself came from Poland. Another time I was in uh, South Korea, and, and President Park, uh, who was later assassinated, uh, asked me about my faith, and we had the same, a similar conversation. I'll abbreviate by just saying it was similar. And and he asked me if I would uh, get him uh, acquainted with a with a Christian in South Korea, which I did. I I, I called one of my leading Baptist friends and and had him go see President Park. The most significant was when I normalized relations with the People's Republic of China in the first of January '79, and and Deng Xiaoping came over, and and when we were having our final banquet, he. He said, Mr. President, you've done a lot for people in China, and you've never asked me anything uh, for yourself. Is there anything I can do for you? And I said, yes. As a matter of fact, when I was a child, I used to give five cents a week to build hospitals and schools for little Chinese children. And, and our number one heroes that used to come to Georgia were, were, were missionaries to China. And now you don't permit missionaries, you don't permit Bibles, and, and you don't permit freedom of worship. And I wish that you would reinstitute those three things. He said, let me think about it. So the next morning he told me, we will not let missionaries come back in, but I promise you that we will authorize the distribution of Bibles for the first time, and we'll also pass a law in China that permits freedom of worship. So they did in 1982. Uh, they did that. I was over in 81 as soon as I left the White House, and they, and they were freely dispu- distributing Bibles. So now, as you know, the fastest-growing number of Christians on earth are in China, and uh, partially because of that conversation I had with Deng Xiaoping. Mr. President, in terms of the gospel itself, uh, one of the issues you've written about of late has been your concern about how it's interpreted. uh, In in terms of the question, must someone come to a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ to be saved? And uh, in a couple of your books, you suggested that that you're not ready to say that, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. What, What is your understanding of the gospel and the necessity of personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe it's a, I believe it is necessary, and I teach that every Sunday uh, in my in my classes that it that it is necessary for for full salvation and acceptance before God to to be believe in Jesus Christ. The question then comes up, though. However, how about the people that don't know about Christ? How about the ones to whom? Christians, evangelicals have never reached or given them the message. <clears throat> and I don't, 
I don't feel constrained, Dr. Mueller, to condemn those people as lost or as going to hell. Uh, and I rationalize it, perhaps, in, in using theological terms or using biblical terms by Jesus' admonition that we should not judge other people but let God be the judge. So in, in a quandary like that about people who don't know about Christ, what would be their fate? Uh, I'm inclined to believe that they will not be condemned or punished by God. Well, that is an ongoing issue of uh, of deep concern to Christians, and uh, I, I think there's probably not a more important question that uh, that we could talk about, just in terms of of helping not only the listeners to this program, but uh, all who uh, would be within our influence to know that uh, that the gospel is uh, it's I believe revealed in Scripture to be the only message that saves. And uh, you've been a, a proponent of missions, and I I think back to when. You were very active in the Southern Baptist Convention and what was called Bold Mission Thrust back in the the early seventies, and so you have uh, you've kind of simultaneously uh, held this position where you're you're not certain that those who've not heard the gospel uh, will be lost, uh, but at the same time, you've been a proponent of sending missionaries. You just talked about uh, your experience talking uh, to the Chinese leadership about this. Well, the Bold Mission Thrust program was begun by a conversation between me and Jimmy Allen who at that time was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I, and I spoke at the convention that year when I was president. It was in Atlanta, I believe. And I was on the way to South, South America. Well, I'm not saying that, that we, we don't all have a mandate. You know, that was the last thing that Christ told us, really, was that we should spread the word about faith in him to, to, in, in Judea and, and so forth and throughout the world. And, and I believe that uh, it's very important for evangelism to take place. But when... When Christians fail to be evangelicals and, and don't reach out to people with, with whom I deal every day in, in Ghana and, and in Nigeria and in Burkina Faso and, and, and so forth in Africa, I just can't bring myself to believe that they will be condemned or sent to hell because no evangelical has ever been able to, to reach them and tell them about Christ. But but I, I, I don't worry about it because I believe that God and Christ obviously will will deal with humanely with those people uh, and, and will not send them into eternal punishment. Mr. President, uh, you, you have been known as a Southern Baptist from the moment you were uh, you were really born and, and, and uh, grew into boyhood there in Plains, Georgia, and then beyond when you were in the presidency, uh, the, the very same thing. Uh, yes. There's no doubt that there has been some uh, some change in that relationship o- over the last several years as change has happened in the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, I, I just feel like, uh, given my responsibility, I should I should turn to you and, and give you the opportunity to to say what you would wish to say to the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, as uh, as we are a denomination uh, that you have known throughout your entire lifetime. Well, I I was a Southern Baptist until the year two thousand, and I was on the Brotherhood Commission. I played an active role in in, in the top echelons of a Southern Baptist Convention without ever having an official office. I really became concerned about the um, about the basic thrust of the Southern Baptist Convention on two or three issues that happened in um, in Florida in, in the convention when, when it was there, uh, and particularly about the status of women. I feel very strongly that in the eyes of God, women are equal to men. And uh, and to say and to choose the particular passages that say that women have to be subservient to men, that they should not teach men uh, and, and boys, I think is is uh, is is 
contrary to the basic thrust of what Christ meant and, and said. I know that you have a different belief in that, and, and, and Southern Baptists do as well. Now there are some of our seminaries that don't even let a woman professor teach boy students in a class, and, and, and others that won't let a woman speak from the pulpit and, and things of that kind. I believe in complete equality. My wife happens to be a deacon uh, in our little church in Plains that I've described already. Uh, our, our, our pastor, we have two pastors. One is a man and one is, is his wife. Uh, they both are ordained, and, and I participated in the, in the ordination. So I believe that, that uh, throughout religious faith that women should be treated uh, equally with men. And, and, I, and, I, and I, here, here again, I, I use the word rationalize pretty often when I'm talking to, to you, at least. Uh, I think in, in, uh, in Romans 16, when Paul described all the leaders of the Christian world in those days, he mentioned a, a number of women who, were, who held exalted positions within the early Christian church. So that's been the main problem that I that I have with the Southern Baptist Convention. Had it not been for that issue, uh, I would I would be much more accommodating with the Southern Baptist Convention. I well, might say that that a few years ago, about five years ago, I felt uh, a need to reach out to the Southern Baptists, and and uh, you may know or not, in 1990, longer than longer than five years ago, I, I had a, an assembly of about 40. Uh, leading Southern Baptists at the Carter Center. Uh, seven of them had been or would be presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention, and we tried to see how we could bring all the Baptists back together in a spirit of harmony. Uh, we had good good luck while we were at the Carter Center, but that um, that was kind of undone uh, later on, and un- to my grief. About five years ago, I started to say we, we started a move called the New Baptist Covenant, Primarily designed to uh, to end the distinction between black and white Baptists, and so we had an assembly in Atlanta, with which you may be familiar. We had about fifteen, sixteen thousand people yes. come, about half black and half white, uh, together, and uh, we also reached out to Hispanics in Texas and other places, and also to some Asians, uh, and so I, I've tried as best I could to bring all our Baptists back together. Um, and I think that the World Baptist Assembly uh, is uh, an umbrella under which we could all all serve. We, we we at our New Baptist Covenants, which I've which I've been one of the leaders of it, we always take the position that we should just uh, assume that uh, that all of us believe in that we are saved by the grace of God through our faith in Jesus Christ, and that in detailed issues. Like uh, like uh, homosexuality or or status of women or the autonomy of of individual churches or the leadership of a pastor uh, as a pastor leader or servant those kind of things be relegated to a completely secondary position and bring our Christians back together but so far that has not been possible and so I'm, I'm grieved about it and and, uh, and I don't claim that I'm right and other people are wrong it's just the way I feel. Mr. President, I think when we talk about some of these things, uh, as people who have been members of the same denomination and of, of churches, I think my boyhood church was uh, was probably very, very similar to your boyhood church. 
uh, sometimes talking about these things can be far harder than if we were talking to a Muslim or a Hindu or someone far beyond us. And uh, I, That's certainly I, true. I just can't tell you how much I appreciate the, uh, the, the fact that we're having this conversation. And uh, I want you to know that, uh, that Southern Baptists admire you for your public leadership, for your boldness to share the gospel, uh, for your leadership in the civil rights movement, when quite frankly, you and many others were right when we were wrong. Uh, and I say we as a denomination, I was very young, but I'm the inheritor of the same responsibility. Uh, I'm very thankful for the work of the Carter Center. And uh, you've largely single-handedly eradicated guinea worm disease, which I find to be one of the most remarkable things that any human being can, can, can say. You, you've, you've been president of the United States. You've received the Nobel Peace Prize. But uh, in terms of the way human beings live, eradicating a, a deadly disease is just one of the most amazing things that could be said. I also recently noted that you and Mrs. Carter have been married for over 65 years and in an age in which, quite frankly, so many of our public leaders model anything but that kind of faithfulness. I just want to tell you, I greatly admire how uh, how you've demonstrated that uh, that marital faithfulness together. And I want to tell you what a great honor it has been to have a conversation like this. And uh, you and I have exchanged ideas at a distance. Uh, I've written some articles that I felt like I needed to write. You published a, a very candid open letter to me in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution a few years ago. But the great honor is knowing that we can actually have a conversation like this, and uh, we can start by talking about our shared love of the Bible and then talk about where that same Bible and our understanding of it leads us also to differ. These are important things for us to talk about, and I want to tell you much I appreciate you joining me today on Thinking in Public. Well, that means a lot to me, and I hope that sometimes you and I might get together for a more, you know, private conversation and see what we can, what we can do to, you know, to pull all of our Baptist Christians together. That would be a real honor and pleasure for me. Well, Mr. President, it would be a great honor for me. Thank I, I want to tell I remember you. very well when you were editor of the Christian Index and how much how much your writings and your editorials are meant to me personally to my family. Well, that and I means... wish you well in everything you do. Those who study the American presidency know that in a conversation like this, you could talk about historical events of tremendous consequence and limit the conversation to history. You could talk about the great social developments and movements of the 20th century, movements that had such a direct connection to the life of Jimmy Carter. You could talk about geopolitics or economics or many other things, but it's fascinating that in this conversation, the focal issue was theology, specifically the Bible. That makes this conversation all the more rare and all the more historical. In all honesty, this is one of the most interesting conversations I have ever had. It is destined to be that way. Talking to a former president of the United States, there are so few of them, and the opportunities for such conversations are so rare. I'm very thankful for this conversation. And in particular terms, I'm thankful I had this conversation with former President Jimmy Carter. There have been several twists and turns in terms of the last several years in which I have found myself at odds with the former president often engaged in public controversy over matters that both of us considered to be of very grave importance. When you have that kind of public disagreement, much less with a former president of the United States, there are risks in any kind of conversation. That's what makes me all the more appreciative of President Carter's willingness to enter into this conversation and for his remarkable candor and honesty throughout the course of the conversation. President Carter's a man of intellectual integrity. He's very clear about what he believes and what he doesn't believe. And for me, the most important aspect of this conversation is what it tells us about the trajectory of the 20th century, 
not so much in terms of geopolitics, but in terms of theology. Theology amongst American evangelicals, American Protestants in the 20th century. The story of Jimmy Carter is also inextricably related to that story. It's fascinating that this conversation was premised upon a love for the Scripture. And that love for the Bible is very clear in President Carter's life. He is indeed the world's most famous Sunday school teacher. He did, as President of the United States, invoke the Scripture often, carry the Scripture with him. He was publicly identified with the Scripture in a way that was courageous and, frankly, grating on the intellectual elites. He did that without fear. But the story of Jimmy Carter, the very story that he narrated for us in this conversation, also takes us back to what the sociologists call lived religion. We can go back, as Jimmy Carter tells his story, to a young boy in a local church, a rural church, in a deep southern state, the state of Georgia, a southern Baptist church, where he did, indeed, develop a great love for the Bible. But as the twists and turns of this story become very apparent to us, Mr. Carter also came to an understanding of the Scripture in terms of its authority and inspiration that was, well, at odds with where the church had historically affirmed those very truths. For instance, it's clear that Mr. Carter holds to what in the 20th century would be defined as a neo-Orthodox understanding of Scripture. When he speaks of the Scripture containing truth, and when he clearly speaks of the event of reading the Scripture as being an act of revelation, He's speaking the kind of language that was associated with Karl Barth and so many others. There were many complementary things that the Neo-Orthodox said about Scripture, but they did not affirm that every single word of Scripture was verbally inspired, something that Scripture claims of itself. Mr. Carter, in the midst of this conversation, made some very interesting statements. For instance, he said that as a scientist trained as a nuclear physicist, there were some things in the Bible that the writers of the Bible just didn't understand. He said, I just ignored these discrepancies as insignificant. In other words, he holds that the authors of Scripture were not only inspired by God or the Holy Spirit in some sense, but they were also trapped within their own systems of meaning. Now, that's a different understanding of inspiration than what we have held, that there's very clearly a divine inspiration that means that the Holy Spirit guards the human authors of Scripture from all error. That's a crucial distinction. But it has to do with the question also, as Mr. Carter intimated, that it was the men who were inspired more than the words who were inspired. Now, when you start to look at that, you realize that the product of divine inspiration is there very much at stake. Mr. Carter teaches the Scripture with enthusiasm. When he holds it in his hand, he refers to it as the Word of God. But as he made clear in this conversation, he doesn't believe that it's a word that is, in terms of plenary verbal inspiration, true in every one of its words. But he also believes greatly what is found in the Bible. He says, for instance, that he does affirm the miracles of the Bible. I was very encouraged by his very bold affirmation of believing in the virgin birth and in other supernatural events recorded in Scripture. But then he makes the odd statement that if those things were not true, his faith in Christ would still be intact. That's a separation of history and theology that I believe is, well, destructive of the gospel. The gospel is predicated upon certain historical events without which there is no gospel. Jesus Christ is not who Scripture reveals him to be. Now, that leads to other aspects of the conversation that were truly revealing, having to do with how President Carter deals with issues of human sexuality and sexual ethics, Very candidly, indeed even courageously, given his own intellectual integrity, he spoke of his selectivity when it comes to those passages. Now, we need to be very honest and say that sometimes evangelicals who hold to the inerrancy of Scripture are inconsistent and often selective where we ought not to be. But that means that we need to check ourselves against that kind of selectivity and make certain that we are employing a hermeneutic that is consistent with our understanding of the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Word of God. 
when it comes to discussing the exclusivity of the gospel, President Carter said a couple of very interesting things. For instance, he speaks very specifically the fact that he believes that a personal faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is, as he said, necessary for full salvation, for full salvation and acceptance before God. He went on and said, though, however, those who never hear will be judged upon their faithfulness in some sense to what they do know. And he says that he will not consign them to hell. Well, the good news for both Jimmy Carter and Albert Moeller is that neither one of us is the divine judge. However, I believe that Scripture very clearly does say that there's a dual destiny, the differentiation of which has to do solely with whether one has come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in Romans 10 says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then it makes very clear that those who are saved are those who indeed hear the gospel and respond to it and believe. Faith comes by hearing, says Paul and hearing by the word of Christ. In other words, what we have in the case of President Carter and in this very remarkable conversation is a trajectory that is altogether familiar to those who know what happened during the 20th century in the different kinds of developments in terms of biblical inspiration, biblical authority, denominational life, and the public understanding of Scripture. President Carter wants to say many very true things about Scripture. He very clearly believes that the Scripture reveals divine truth. But he doesn't believe that every word of Scripture is inerrant or inspired. And he believes that the divine authors of Scripture, though inspired, were trapped within the worldview of their times, and thus susceptible to at least some degree of error. He suggests that when it comes to human sexuality, even though he says straightforwardly that the Apostle Paul speaks very clearly to homosexuality, listing it with other sins, he says that he does not want to judge homosexuals on that basis. Jimmy Carter is a remarkable human being. And again, I've really appreciated the conversation with him. I appreciate it even more reflecting upon the actual content of that conversation, a conversation that dealt with some of the most important and consequential theological issues that any two men could discuss together. Furthermore, I'm very thankful that President Carter was willing to enter into the public nature of this conversation. And even as he will judge my words, well, inevitably in conversation, we judge each other. And as I evaluate President Carter's testimony about the Scripture, I have to say that it tells a story that desperately needs to be told, a story that is altogether very common in the 20th century, of a young boy who was raised within the piety and in the warm-hearted evangelical fervor of a Southern Baptist church in the South, but who did not come to a deep understanding of the Scripture's authority in terms of its divine inspiration, its verbal inspiration, and its inerrancy a young man who was caught up in the 20th century social transformations and who clearly understood that social change was not only needed, it was a mandate. And one of the issues that happened during the 20th century is that so many Christians, young Christians who saw deep social ills and signed on to a progressive understanding of politics and social change, also began to attach a progressivist understanding to theology and indeed to the scriptures. And what we see is that in the case of so many Southern Baptists and mainline Protestants of the 20th century is that they did basically adopt something like a neo-Orthodox understanding of Scripture. And that's where we see the problem in this conversation. And that's where we also see the opportunity that the conversation affords. President Carter was very candid and honest about his understanding of the Scripture. And I need to be equally so. I believe that the Scripture is the inerrant and fallible Word of God. I believe that God inspired men, yes, the writers of Scripture, as Scripture says of itself, to write in such a way that they were preserved and protected from all error, such that when Scripture speaks, God speaks. That puts a constraint upon us that does not allow the kind of selectivity that we could just claim as an interpretive principle. 
Mr. Carter is a very skilled and very serious interpreter of Scripture. He goes to commentaries and he reads, and as he teaches his Sunday school class, he, he wants to speak of what the text says. But what the text means is not, uh, well, it can't be separated from what the text actually states and the divine authority with which the text speaks. Jimmy Carter is the world's most famous Sunday school teacher, and in his most recent book and in so many others, he deals with the Scripture. And by and large, as evangelical Christians committed to the inerrancy of Scripture would read those comments, they would find tremendous areas of commonality. President Carter mentioned early in the conversation that even as there are issues in which we undoubtedly differ, there are vast areas in which we are in agreement. That's also true. But the issue for us, the difficult issue, is where there is disagreement, not where there's agreement. And that's what makes a conversation like this truly important. We're called to be thinking in public in order to discuss these things in such a way that we speak with great respect and we speak with appreciation for each other, for the appreciation of the opportunity for a conversation about what really matters, what matters not only to us, but to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That trajectory that is represented by Jimmy Carter, that trajectory of pietist religion in the South in the 20th century, meets head-on with the great theological transformations that came at the end of that century, especially in the second quarter, and continue now into the 21st century. The issues of biblical authority and the verbal inspiration of Scripture, the issues of human sexuality and the exclusivity of the gospel, of the authority of Scripture and the veracity of all that it contains, the miracles and everything else, all of these are still live issues. Just like the great social and political issues of the 20th century are still with us, so also are the theological issues. And that's why this conversation is important not only to look to the past, nor even just to think about the present, but to aim to the future. It's a great challenge and opportunity to speak to a former president of the United States, an 87-year-old man who continues to be active in public life and to speak and to write about the things that are most important to him. I mentioned in the conversation that I first heard the names of Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul Tillich from President Carter. It was in the course of his 1976 presidential campaign. I was 16 years old. I'd never heard those names before. I went to look them up. Now, at age 16, I didn't find out a great deal about those two men, but as I studied theology as an academic discipline, I certainly did. It's interesting, of course, that he would cite those two theologians as most formative in terms of his life and his thinking. Reinhold Niebuhr was a very complex figure, a titanic figure of, of Protestant theology in the 20th century, a man who did indeed stress the reality of human sinfulness, but he did so primarily in terms of social structures, not in terms of individual responsibility. There's a great question as to whether Reinhold Niebuhr actually believed in a personal God, even though he did believe in a force of divine justice. Now, when we come to Paul Tillich, well, there's an altogether different picture. We're rather certain that he did not believe in a personal God. In fact, he made very clear that he did not. He did not believe in a personal God, a revealing God who speaks in Scripture, but rather he believed in a great force, a ground of being. He merged existentialism with theological language. In other words, Paul Tillich was one of the most radical theologians of the 20th century, and of course, he gave birth to other radical schools of theology that followed. Now, the interesting thing to note here is that if you were a young man, a thinking young man, a thinking young Protestant in the 20th century, during the decades when Jimmy Carter was coming to his intellectual maturity, if you were certain that vast social change needed to take place, well, you often look to those leaders who were providing the intellectual superstructure for those changes. Unfortunately, on the theological side, it was often the liberal theologians who were right on some of the most important social issues. And altogether, too many young evangelicals attached their theological allegiance to liberal theologians 
who were right on other issues, but deeply wrong in areas of theology. This led to a trajectory whereas there were a good many people who were raised in the piety of the, of the Southern Baptist Convention and other denominations in the United States, but whose minds became very much attached to and even depended upon theologians whose own theological systems were radically at odds with those that they had known as children. One of the things we need to note is that theology matters. Isn't it interesting that this theme, that theology matters, comes up in a conversation with a man whose chief claim to fame, notoriety, and historical significance is that he served not as a theologian-in-chief, but as commander-in-chief, as president of the United States. One of the most difficult things to do in terms of a Christian conversation is to disagree, and to disagree publicly. That's why I so respect President Carter's willingness to enter into this conversation. And even as it was an opportunity for him to speak of his deepest convictions, it's also an opportunity for us to consider what these things mean, not only to the church in terms of its past, but in terms of its present and future. I deeply appreciate the willingness of President Carter to enter into this conversation. As I said in the interview, I greatly respect President Carter for all the good things he has done. The eradication of disease, so many things he's done since he has been out of office. I also respect the fact, I have to say, that even when I disagree with him, whether on matters theological or matters political and cultural, here's a man who in his ninth decade of life is still actively engaged in a way that is not only serious, but indeed even courageous in terms of the fact that he articulates his beliefs, he stands behind them, and he's willing to stand before the watching world and stand on his own two feet for all that he believes. This is also the kind of conversation in which, to be honest, I face a great personal challenge. And that personal challenge is to be reminded again and again of what it means for personal conviction to intersect with an entire web of personal relationships that are important not only to me, not only to a local church and to a denomination, but to a nation and to a watching world. A conversation like this is a matter of stewardship. It's given us a lot to think about. And as we think about these things, my greatest concern is that we will be faithful to the full authority and truthfulness of Scripture, to the integrity of the gospel, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And along with President Carter, who speaks very candidly of his conviction, it reminds us to speak with equal candor of our own. There's a lot to learn from each other in a conversation like this. That's why it's important to think and to enter into conversation with people whose beliefs are not identical to our own. And the great stewardship of this, of course, is not only having the conversation, not only thinking, but thinking in public. Great thanks again to my guest, President Carter, for thinking with me today. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.